Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your host, and I am so excited to be here this week with Lauren Schaefer, Developer Advocate at Grammarly. How's it going, Lauren? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, Let's start all the way at the beginning. I love to, to go back in time with my guests. I would love to hear your story of how you, you know, initially got interested in CS and programming. Yeah, so I remember um, back when my family first got a computer, I think I was four or five years old, and I just loved playing on it. I thought it was just a blast, and we've got pictures of me playing on the computer, like in my swimsuit, like I was hooked initially, Um, and then I remember in middle school when my family got the internet, and that just opened up things for me, and I was fascinated with websites. And I remember, I think it was called oepages.com, which no one else seems to remember. Uh, But it was like just a place where you could go and build your own web page, WYSIWYG editor. Thought it was fascinating, built my own site. It was very hip, lots of GIFs on it. And um, eventually I said, I want to take it a step further and learn HTML. So I actually went to a, a physical bookstore and picked up HTML for dummies. And I read the whole thing. And I had a blast building a website for myself and, you know, it was super ugly, but like, it was so fun to play with. So that's how I, I got started. Did you have like those fun under construction gifts of like the guy with the shovel? <laughs> of course. Yes. Yeah. Who didn't? <laughs> it was iconic. Um, what, what was your first website about? Um, I think it was just introducing the world uh, to me. So I, I think it was about me. <laughs> No, that's cool. I, 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 I very distinctly remember like building my first website about the Animorphs books, which I know is like placing oh. myself in a very particular generation, but uh, I used to like scan in the book covers or something and put them on a website. I don't entirely remember, but yeah. 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 It's good times. It was a weird time. Um, so you, uh, you know, I, I take it that that passion, right. From a young age, directed you on this path into computer science, right? And, and you know, you've pursued both undergrad and graduate education there. A lot of people, you know, especially these days, go straight from undergrad into industry. Um, why did you decide to go deeper? Like, why, you know, pursue graduate education there when you already had, you know, a lot of these skills? So I came into uh, university with a lot of AP classes and college credits. And I took summer school. uh, And so I was able to graduate in three years. And to be honest with you, I just really wasn't done with the college experience yet. My friends were still around and I was like, I don't know what I really want to do with myself here. So my senior year, I started applying to full-time jobs and also applying to grad school and just kind of seeing what felt right. And I was able to get a full scholarship for a master's degree. And I was like, well, when else in my life am I going to get this? I, I might as well just keep going. So uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, I got to work with, um, and it, my advisor for grad school was someone I really respected who I knew from undergrad. And it was just, it was a great opportunity for me to just kind of stick around and go deeper. That's awesome. You, you know, it's funny, like 
I think a lot of the time people look at a path like that and it feels very linear, but in reality, a lot of it is just serendipity, right? Yeah. Like finding the right opportunity at the right time. For sure. Um, that's really cool. Uh, how did the graduate uh, kind of like computer science program differ from undergrad? So uh, I was in a, a research-based program. So as part of my master's degree, I had to write a thesis and I ended up being part of a research group. So I was around PhD students for most of it. Um, so I was taking much harder courses. And I, as part of the research group, uh, every week we got together and read computer science research papers, uh, which very new skill to me. And I learned how to read them and sort of evaluate the research and dig in. So that was, that was a very new experience for me. So it, it was, I got to dig into research for the first time. When you think about that aspect of computer science, like obviously you've had a lot of roles now that are, I would, you know, from the outside say are very like hands-on, right? You are building things, you are creating technology, you know, has that foundational knowledge come into handy? Like how has that actually factored into your professional life? So as part of that uh, research that I did, um, I took a, st a stats course and by no means am I a stats expert, but I learned the basics of like how to set up an experiment and how to evaluate the results. Um, and I have used that as I've looked at, at user studies. So back at, at MongoDB, we were building um, the speaker center of excellence for MongoDB employees to become speakers out at, at conferences. And so we wanted to measure our success. So we built a survey and then I was able to, to analyze the results and build a whole report around it. And that was very similar to what I had done in grad school. So um, I've reused those skills as I've sort of analyzed surveys and, and you know, evaluated results. That's really interesting. I, I um... I worked with one other person who had that research background and they had a similar perspective about like how surveying itself was a skill and a discipline. And it feels mm -hmm. like industry often misses that, right? Like it's kind of just something you do, but there's not a lot of science behind it. But what are some things that like, I don't know, a researcher might think about surveying that differs from a lay person like me who's just putting together something on type form? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't have, I don't know that I have a great answer. I think when I, when I approach it, I'm thinking, how are we going to be able to evaluate this over time? How are we going to be able to, to judge a difference? Um, and then making sure we're, we're collecting whatever demographic data we can, so we can dig in and look for trends. Um, but I don't know that that's much different than what, probably what you're doing. I would guess my questions are probably less well-constructed, but yeah. Um, so when you think about, uh, you know, those types of skills, that type of experience, um, you know, a lot of people going into the industry these days really like want to just jump right in. They want to write software. Maybe they want to drop out and start a startup. Like there's all these different ways to kind of get into tech. Do you think it's it's valuable for people to to get graduate level degrees? Do you think that people should go to a computer science route? Like what what uh, not looking back on it, right? Like do you recommend it? Uh, I'm not gonna sit here and say that the only way into tech is a bachelor's degree. The only way into tech is a master's degree. I think there's many ways in, and I love that 
tech is becoming more open and that there are becoming more pathways to get in. We are becoming more inclusive slowly, but we're getting there. Um, but was a master's degree worth it for me? When I look back, I say, yeah, it, it, it was. I think um, one of the biggest skills I learned in grad school was just how to like stick with it and survive in advance. Like the idea of getting up and and presenting a master's project in front of professors was absolutely terrifying to me. Like I remember I didn't invite my my fiance, I didn't invite my friends to it because I was like, what if I mess up and I fail and then everybody sees me fail? Like everybody knows I'm going to take this test. Everybody's going to know if I fail. And so there was that that real element of risk to it to me. And so knowing that, oh my gosh, I did it. I survived professors validated my work. I, I did it. That was, that's something that I carry with me forever. Like no one can take that away from me. So for me, that was very validating, um, that I can, I can do something that's really scary and I'm going to make it through and, and, and I can do that again in the future. Yeah. I think that's incredibly important. Um, it's, uh, you know, we work with a lot of students at MLH and that first time we see them demoing a project that they've built, it's so nerve wracking. Like that's like the yeah. scariest thing in the world. And, you know, getting over that hump is, is such a, a hurdle, but it's important. You know? For sure. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. I, I, I love that background and, and, you know, it's very different from my own. Like I have a history degree, so I don't know anything about Oh, wow. Science. Yeah. And I definitely have some like, uh, I don't know, like retroactive FOMO of like, oh, I kind of wish I understood algorithms a little bit. But, you know, it's it's a different skill set, I suppose. Um, so you you went from ac academia, right, into IBM. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think there were maybe a couple of steps in between. But one of the things that really struck me is you have touched so many different disciplines and in industry. Uh, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, some of the folks I speak to are software engineers, software engineering managers director. It's a very, very like straight path. But I always love hearing from people who have a little bit more like variety of experience, because I think it, um, you know, changes your perspective, right? Uh, one of the things I'd love to hear about from you is how you actually picked what to focus on at IBM, right? Like, when I saw engineering and DevRel and UI, UX and marketing, like, what drew you to each of those different divisions at the time that you chose it? Uh, so I, w I wish I could tell you like, oh, I, I set out and I had a plan and I was going to do all these things. But um, for the most part, it, it, was kind of, it was kind of serendipitous. Um, occasionally, I would have a clear end to a project. Then it was like, okay, now what am I going to do next? Where am I going to go? But usually it was more of like, okay, you, you've got this skill. You've worked on this. And now you can build on it and go join this other team. So, okay, so for example, um, in my first role, I came in uh, with a lot of uh, automated testing experience that I'd picked up in school. And they didn't have a lot of automated tests. I don't remember if they had any, if they did, it was very minimal. So they said, Lauren, go build us some automated tests. I loved doing it. It was great for me. And I built a test suite that ended up turning into the bigger level teams build verification test. So then they said, okay, well, Lauren, it makes sense for you to keep working on this, come join our test team. And so then I got to really dig in and, and focus on automated testing. 
And so things like that kept happening. So an, another case, I was a, working as a JavaScript developer on a team, and that was my main role, but people knew I, I liked talking to other people. So I had communication skills. So when a new release came out, they'd say, Lauren, go write a blog post about this release or go create a video about this release. They needed social media. Lauren, figure out social media for us. So then when that team decided, oh, we need to have a growth hacking team, it made sense for me to shift over there. So I always went and I had some sort of base context. I knew the product, so I wasn't starting from scratch, but I was able to go learn new skills um, and jump over and try new things. So it, it was a great experience for me. What do you think um, you know, you've gained in a technical context from touching so many different parts of the business? Like, like has it changed your perspective on engineering? Has it changed your perspective on, on DevRel? Mm. I think I just have, I have an appreciation for the different roles. So it, mm. it does allow me to be kind of empathetic with, with different perspectives. Um, when I first joined Grammarly, I was working on our docs team or I, I was, I was, I was the docs team. And so I was writing all of our docs. And as part of that, I was the first to try out all these features. So I was digging in, trying them out, giving feedback, um, testing them. And so that I was able to, to lean on that test background and, and give feedback and write test reports that they would actually be able to reproduce. So I don't know, everything's just, I just view it all as tools in your tool belt and you take them with you and you build as you go. Yeah. Um, one of the ones that caught my eye at IBM was that you were involved with patents for a long time. Um, yes. I think you, were you on like a patent committee or was it like a patent specific role? Like what was the story there? So Patents are very important to moving up the technical career ladder at IBM. So mm -hmm. you have to kind of build your patent portfolio over time. So when I first joined IBM, I, I, I thought I had an idea. I wrote it up. I presented it. It flopped. I was like, oh, I'm just like bad at this. This is not going to happen. So a couple of years later, I was at the Grace Hopper's Celebration of Women in Computing, this massive women's event. And it got me all fired up. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to try this again. And um, IBM had a program where they wanted to start creating more patent brainstorming groups. So the idea is you get together in a group, you throw out ideas, you write them up together. So they said, we're going to assign, if you want to have a group, we'll assign you a mentor. I'll stick with you for like three months, teach you the process, and then you can keep going. So I was like, hey, who wants to be on my patent brainstorming team? And so I collected a group of people. We kind of figured it out together. We had a mentor who was amazing. And then she left us and we were on our own. And so that was another case of like, we, we figured it out together and it was really hard. And then we, we figured it out. We pushed through. Um, and yeah, so I led a patent brainstorming team there for several years. Uh, and I'm the co-inventor of, I think, 14 issued patents, which is really cool. Another thing that just kind of carries with you wherever you go, which is awesome. That's pretty sweet. Um, I, I feel like patents get a bad rap. Like you read about patent trolls, you read about all these weird, like high profile court cases. And, you know, I can kind of envision the value of patents for IBM. What have you found, you know, from an individual perspective to be the value of filing patents or being part of one? Um, so they, I, I will acknowledge there, there are good sides and downsides of patents. Let me just start there. 
the way that IBM always talked about them when I was there, and of course things may have changed, but was just to think about it from the perspective of we want to patent the idea so that other people can't block us from working on that idea. So that was the approach we took. Um, and it the nice thing about them is they get you kind of out of what you're necessarily working on and you get to think about bigger problems. Oh, I've, I've got this problem when I go to the movie theater and how are we going to solve it? Um, so that, that's the exciting thing. And now I've realized I forgot where your question started. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I, I mean, I was just curious, like, like, I don't know, did it focus your thinking about things? Did the process of creating a patent provide value? Like, you know, big companies have all this infrastructure to support filing patents. Small startups often don't. And yeah. I'm wondering if there's something, you know, people are missing there. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if I, I, I don't know if, I'm sorry. I just don't have a great answer for you. That's okay. Um, so at IBM, right, touching all these different parts of the organization, um, you know, you mentioned that it's given you a lot of different tools in your tool belt, which, you know, is a really nice way of kind of describing like expertise and skills that you develop over the years. Um, was there anything really unexpected that you learned from uh, being involved with so many different parts of this, you know, massive organization? I think the biggest learning I had was how to work with different types of people from different cultures and different backgrounds. So IBM is this massive worldwide organization and I, I regularly worked with people from, from different countries all, all over the place. Um, and I had managers with wildly different management styles and colleagues with wildly different communication styles. I mean, most of the time my colleagues were super supportive, um, but I, I distinctly remember one colleague who at the time I felt like was tearing me down with their words. And looking back, I don't know if it was intentional. I don't know if I was just uh, oversensitive and, and maybe having a confidence issue, um, but I'm now much better equipped to work with people from different backgrounds and understand why they might be wording things the way they are. So I think that was, that was a fantastic learning there. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably an underrated part of, uh, you know, working with other people is knowing how to communicate with them. Um, so you, you started telling me a little bit earlier that uh, you kind of started blogging and writing, you know, docs and all of that as an extension of some of the other work you were doing at IBM. Um, did you kind of just like land in DevRel as a result of that? Like what drew you to DevRel? Because it is a, is a really unique niche, right? It's not, um, you know, a field that most people think about coming out of any kind of like training program. Yeah, it, it definitely just kind of came out of side work that I was doing. So like I mentioned, um, I started writing blog posts and creating videos. I also, one of the very first things my manager encouraged me to do was answer questions on our forums, mm -hmm. which at the time was absolutely frightening to me uh, because the, the answers I was putting out there were going to be public. Like my colleagues would be able to see it. I was brand new out of college. Like, I don't know. I knew I didn't know anything. Um and I just, I started liking those things and I kept practicing them over time and I got better and better at it. And I discovered that I like coding, but I don't necessarily need to code all the time. Like I love the different aspects of things you get to do in DevRel. 
um, I started speaking at conferences while I was IB at IBM. So I got to build this foundation of DevRel. And then eventually I was like, oh, I think I want to do this full time. So I, I made the leap. That's awesome. Um, in doing DevRel, uh, I, I would imagine that a lot of those communication skills you developed came in handy. Like, what, what are some of the things that you've um, kind of built over the years in how you communicate concepts to developers, right? When you're writing, you know, blog posts or creating videos or speaking at conferences, I would imagine there's some some sort of like principles or philosophy that drive your work. Do you have anything that you've sort of like summarized or distilled down? Um, the big things I try to focus on are being both engaging and easy to understand. So people will tell you that they just want, they just want the facts, just give me the technical content. But most of the time, that's not really true. People remember the story. They remember the surprises. The, they remember what makes them laugh. So I try to focus on both. It, it needs to be engaging. It needs to be under, easy to understand. And, well, and technically correct. So maybe there's three things. But uh, th those are the big things I really focus on. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, so a lot of the DevRel people I talk to uh, worry about keeping their engineering skills sharp. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's often this tension between the, the marketing and content and product side of DevRel and the engineering side. Uh, how have you continued to hone, you know, your engineering skills and what advice might you give to other DevRel folks to, you know, keep their own skills sharp? It is super challenging to do. It's something I'm always thinking about. Uh, when I was at MongoDB, I campaigned with my manager to let him uh, give me a, a quarter off to go work on an engineering team. And so I kept calling it an internship. I was like, please, let me just go intern on an engineering team. Just let me go be an intern again. And it turns out there's a name for it. It's called a second mint, which I had not heard of before I actually did it. And it was a fantastic experience for me. So I got to go over, I cleared my DevRel calendar. I said, no conferences, Let's, I'm gonna go focus for a quarter. And I got to go work on the MongoDB Node.js driver team and just refresh my skills. And it was, it was fantastic. I got to learn how their build process worked. I had never um, lived semantic versioning before. So I got to really get deep and understand that. And um, I brought some of my skills with me too. So I was able to like help improve their docs and improve their onboarding experience for their new team members. So I think it was, it was a mutually beneficial situation. That's really cool. Um, it, it's, I feel like a lot of companies would get value out of having rotations like that, you know, like rotating people through different teams. Like I could imagine engineers getting value from popping over to a DevRel team for a quarter too. For sure. Or even, even just engineers rotating to a different engineering team. I mean, it's amazing what you pick up just from working with different people. I mean, I, I went over to that team and they just showed me uh, new shortcuts in VS Code. And I was like, this is amazing. Like just getting around new people is always really, really thrilling. And you learn so much from them. Yeah. Um, Mongo, I, I think, has a reputation for having a really strong engineering culture. Like it's, I, I mean... Everyone I've ever known there who, who's worked as an engineer is incredibly talented and they have, you know, a lot of really cool technology. Um, were, were there any like interesting things about the engineering culture that like stuck with you? Yes. So one of the things that I thought was really cool was how they 
took their user stories and they voted on um the the time now I'm trying to remember what they're like is this a one is this a two is this an eight and I remember back from when I was doing full-time software engineering we'd be like oh an eight is a full day and um a four is a half day and we would just kind of like guess and like it didn't really mean anything and they had a full system based on how long they thought it would take and risk and complexity and testing and they they would just say, oh yeah, this is going to require a lot of testing. So it's at least a four. This is going to, this is a big risk. So we're going to up that. And it was incredible how quickly they came to uh, sizing their user stories. That, that was very impressive to me. I'd never seen that before. That's really cool. Um, is there any similar concept for, for DevRel work? Like how do you size mm -hmm. a, a tutorial or a conference talk? I block a lot of time. Uh, <laughs> Right. Right now I've I've gotten to the point this quarter, I, I haven't done it before where I'm saying, okay, these are the dates I'm going to push out my content. And then I just sort of work backwards and say, so that means this week it has to be in editorial review. And so that means this week it needs to be in technical review and working backwards that way. Um, so, so the opposite of what basically we were doing over there with rating our user stories, but that approach seems to be working for me to make sure we're getting content out on time. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that writing code and doing code sprints is a somewhat different muscle than than creating more like long form or written content. Yeah. Um so at Grammarly, right? And and you mentioned earlier that uh you know you spent a lot of time on on docs and content when you first joined. And I know from you know talking to you a little bit beforehand that you've put a lot of work into the strategy and sort of the philosophy of DevRel at Grammarly too. Um, I'm curious, like what, what principles did you bring in with you when you set out to be the founding member of that DevRel team? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think the, the first thing I brought was, uh, I think it's, it's a quote, I think it's attributed to Ewan Dennis. Um, people quote it all the time, but to the community, I represent the company and to the company, I represent the community. And so I really tried to emphasize that with everyone we met. So when I joined, developer relations was totally new to Grammarly. So we have a longstanding consumer business and business to business model, but we haven't worked directly with developers before. So this is a, a brand new audience. So I was sort of introducing the idea, not only of who I was, but what developer relations is. So as part of that, as part of introducing my strategy, I was telling people, this is what developer relations is. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. And so I always emphasize that we're going to keep both people's, um, both entities' interests in mind at all times. So that was the first one. The other thing I did, <clears throat> excuse me, is I, I wanted a strategy to be able to point to that was not just my strategy. I was like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do this thing that already exists. So I picked up Phil Legator's ARP model and I was like, this is what we're doing. So I was able to very easily say right now, while we're in beta, we're going to focus on um, the product and we are going to focus on activation. Then we move to general availability. We're going to stick with that, but we're also going to add awareness. And so I loved just being able to be like, this is what we're going to do. And this is why. And, you know, nobody really questioned it because it was already an established strategy. Yeah, I actually love that. I feel like, um, you know, in engineering, for instance, like 
every engineering manager is not reinventing how you do engineering, you know, or right. plan sprints. You know, DevRel has, um, I think over the years, like had a lot of reinvention problems where everyone's trying to figure something out from scratch. And I think there's actually an immense amount of value to be gained from building on a foundation and iterating on it. Um, and, you know, as, as the field matures, perhaps there will be more opportunities to do that. But um, that sounds like a really like salient strategy, right? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it worked um, well for us. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, like what part of the org is DevRel in at Grammarly? Uh, I report to product. Um, it, it seems like uh, where DevRel sits often shapes the strategy quite a bit, right? Um, have you found that to be true? Like what, what has being in product implied for DevRel at Grammarly? So I think it's actually been really good for me personally because mm -hmm. The part of DevRel that I gravitate to that I really enjoy the most is creating content and outbound activities. And so I, I lean that way. So being in product, there's that constant reminder of we got to get the feedback back. We got to try this out. We got to make sure it's good. We got to focus on the product as well. So for me, that's personally, that's been a really nice balance. Um, but the, the nice thing about where I sit as well is we're a very small team. Grammarly for developers itself is its own kind of sort of mini startup inside of Grammarly. So we're very tight with the engineering team. We're very tight with the marketing team. Even though we don't all report to the same people, we're very much on the same team. Uh, when I was writing documentation, I was in the engineering standup every day with them. So I could ask questions. I knew exactly what they were developing so that there were no surprises at the end of the sprint of like, oh, here's this new feature that you didn't know you needed to write about. So I was there every day. Uh, so we're, we're very tightly integrated. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think I like the idea of DevRel as a product function. Um, like when I was in DevRel, we reported into marketing, which has all of these different implications, right? Like, how you yeah. set your goals, how you optimize your time, you know, what you're trying to deliver. Um, product feels like a really natural fit. It seems like a lot of orgs are moving in that direction. Yeah, I think as long as you have access to the people you need to have access to and you're working towards common goals, it, it's not essential where you're located. It's just, it gets tricky if you're reporting to different people and your goals are not aligned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it sounds like content has been a big part of your focus at Grammarly. Uh, how do you create the content for Grammarly? Like you mentioned working backwards from a timeline. Um, what, what other pieces of your process are there? So I usually start with either common questions I'm seeing or things that have tripped me up as I've been trying it or just jumping on a fun trend that I think is interesting. So usually it's common questions, but like, Last year, I was so excited about Taylor Swift's new album coming out. And I was like, we've got to jump on this. So I built um, a th custom theme for the Grammarly text editor SDK that matched every one of Taylor Swift's studio albums. And then I put out a blog post on the day of the album release, and I did a live stream on the day of the album release. And so that was just a, a fun thing to do. Got a lot of views on that day, really capitalized on that. So that's where I start is common questions or something fun. That's incredible. I I, um, I actually really love that. Like, I feel like uh, it's easy to get caught up in like the delivery of content as this like very like technical kind of like dry discipline, but like DevRel's fun, 
you know yeah. like some of my favorite blog posts I ever wrote were like bizarre and esoteric and like weird you know like things but it was fun and people had fun with it you know and I and I, I love that you're able to like make that part of your strategy I, I think it's really important yeah. And that's what people remember, right? They, they remember that, oh, that there was that Grammarly thing somewhere and there, I saw something about Taylor Swift. I like Taylor, you know, that's the stuff that sticks. Yep. That makes a company feel more human. For sure. Yeah. Yes. I'm always trying to inject my personality whenever I can. Yeah. Um, so as you're creating that content, right, you, you mentioned sort of where the ideas come from. Um, what about the actual content creation process? Like, like, do you just sit down and, and bang out a blog post? Like, what, what do you do to make this content really, you know, as you said, uh, memorable and technically correct and engaging and, and all of those different things? So I usually start with uh, building the code. And uh, if I'm not feeling super confident in what I've built, I'm going to send it out for a code review right away because you want to get that reviewed before you start building all the other content around it, just in case, because who wants to rework everything? Um, so always start with the code. And then I typically will start with a blog as my first piece of content around it. I know some people think really well verbally. I tend to think better in writing. So that helps me really clarify my thoughts and realize where there's gaps in my understanding. Uh, so I like to write first as I'm a huge uh, advocate of reviews. So I will get a technical review on every blog post and I will also get an editorial review. So uh, I work for Grammarly, love Grammarly. We always get Grammarly to review everything. And then I actually have a, a real human who reviews it as well to make sure that it all makes sense. And um, it's nice to have somebody else look at it and go, mm, I mean, this is grammatically correct, but I don't, I don't fully get what you're saying here. So, uh, I always get everything reviewed and then, great. Um, yeah. So, uh, you start with the code, then you perhaps put it in writing. Um, I know you create a lot of really successful video content too. Uh, how do you translate a written post into something that's for video? Is it just like a direct, you know, I follow this and record it, or is there more to it? I usually follow the same format for video. Uh, so if you'll look, if I have three main points in my blog post, you're going to see probably three main points in my video. When possible, I'll try to make it more interesting uh, in the video format if I can get a more unique visualization, something like that. Uh, but they are they are pretty similar uh, piece, piece to piece. Uh, I know that you've done a lot of live streaming too, right? And that seems to be a big trend in DevRel. Um, what, what have you found, you know, to be the big differences between, you know, recorded produced video content and doing something live? And, and I, I'd love to hear both about like, you know, the process, but also the the audience reaction to something. So I like doing live streams better because people accept the flaws. Like it's a faster recording process. You, you do it. And if you make a mistake, you go, oops, we messed up. We're going to fix it right now. And then you just keep going. But I feel like there's a, I don't know. I don't know if everyone feels this way, but I have a sense of perfectionism in pre-recorded videos and everything needs to be just right. Uh, and it takes a long time to edit that way. So yeah. I, I prefer live streams just because of that acceptance of the the easier easier going nature of it. Yeah, and I I always like when like people are in chat on Twitch or something being like, 
oh, like you have a syntax error on like line 13 or whatever. Yes. And then you get to find out right away if something you're saying is confusing and you can clarify it. Yep. Yeah, it, it's engaging in a, in a really unique way. Um, what, what tooling do you use to create and edit your videos? Uh, so I use OBS to record it and then I edit it all using the Adobe Suite. How, how did you learn video editing skills? Uh, just on the fly and Googling and I'm, I'm not the best, but it's good enough. Yep. I feel like what people really care about is that you've got high quality audio. People will very much complain if your audio sucks. And then the rest is just kind of bonus. Are there any uh, like content creators or educators out there in, in the developer space that you really like look up to and um, admire? I really like Andrew Mead's stuff on Udemy. I love just a course that's well done. And I took his Node.js course. I loved it. I got halfway through his GraphQL course and got sidetracked, um, but I, I just bought his React course and I'm going to be working on that. Uh, I've got a, court, a week set aside this quarter to work through that, so I'm excited about that. When you do courses like that, um, one of the things I've always struggled with is like accountability and motivation to finish them. Like, How do yeah. you get through that on your own when, when it's sort of self-paced? I, what I try to do is just block out a week and whatever I can get done in that week. So that GraphQL course was massive. There's no way I was going to get through it. Okay. I didn't make it through. Um, but yeah, whatever I can get through in a week and then maybe next quarter, I'll pick up another week and, and try to, to finish it or learn something new. Yeah. Cool. Um, going back to Grammarly for a second, because one of the things I always admire about people like Andrew, where they have these like mega courses is they they version them really well yeah uh, like they do a really good job of like making sure that like everything is a good well-defined snapshot of a piece of technology how do you think about that in your own content like how do you make sure that something is relevant and current and, and updated with blog posts and articles i usually just make it very clear um at the top this works with Node.js version, whatever. And, and that's a, a point in time. Um, for really popular articles, I will go back and update them. And, and I'll usually make a second version of it and say, if you're using this version, jump over here. Uh, but I think people mostly accept with articles and blog posts, they are point in time and that, that's when it works. Yes, I, I wish more people did what you did where they actually tell you what version it's running on. But I... <laughs> Yes, it's nice to have a, a good snapshot in time. Um, that's really cool. Uh, so we covered a lot of ground here, right? From like, you know, academic background to industry. Uh, when you think about, you know, how developers learn and are educated in like a big picture way, is there anything you would change about it? I really appreciated during the pandemic that everyone shifted to conferences online. And I'm appreciating that some conferences are sticking with that or doing a hybrid option um, because it makes them more accessible for people who can't travel for whatever reason. Maybe they don't have the finances to travel. Maybe they've got obligations. They've got dependents, aging parents, kids, they can't travel, whatever the reason. And so I really appreciated that shift to, to the hybrid mode. Um, you know, I, I'm a working mom. I really struggled with mom guilt when I started traveling for conferences again after she was born. So whenever there's a chance to do an online conference, I, I jump on it 
So I hope that trend sticks. And as part of that, I would love to see a shift where developers are able to really block off the time for conferences. And there's an expectation that they're going to, with their bosses, that they're going to sign off a Slack, they're going to sign out an email and, and really do it the same way that they would do an in-person event. And maybe they go sit outside, they go sit somewhere else, they get out of their daily environment. Because I know when I'm sitting here and I'm attending conferences, I have a tendency to keep my Slack open. I'm distracted. I'm not giving my full attention. And I think one of the great things about conferences is you get a chance to like step away from your daily work and you get that refreshing and you get to think about things in different ways and like, oh, this is this new concept. Maybe I could apply it over here. And so I, I would just love to see a shift of people really embracing remote conferences for what they are and, and, and shutting out everything else. Yeah. Well, what are some of your favorite virtual conferences? Oh, um, let's see. I went to Con 42 online and that was really well done. Um, oh, the code motion conferences are well done and they, uh, the chat in discord is, is very active, which I appreciate. Yeah. I, I feel like discord's become the, the main gathering place for a lot of them, but it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. We, um, transitioned a lot of our events to virtual in the middle of the pandemic. And now we run both virtual and in-person events for students, um, and in addition to like the accessibility you're talking about where it's like, you know, like maybe you're physically in an area where conferences are going on, but you don't have, you know, the ability or time or money to travel to it. We also saw like a huge globalization of, of our events where previously, if you had an event in San Francisco, it was like mostly people from the Bay Area. Now, mm -hmm. if you have an event, it's people from 30 different countries participating. And I like... Think it's such a cool uh i don't know like it's a, it's a really cool like way to share knowledge and experience and opportunities with people that you wouldn't otherwise meet in a, in a normal conference context i love that and how how what do you do to encourage people to to get out and actually talk to each other rather than just like kind of sit here in your own little bubble in your house it's tough i, I mean i it's a work in progress, I'll say, but like Discord is the tool we use most. So we use a combination of Discord and Twitch. And a lot of it is like treating a virtual event like an in-person event, meaning you have things going on. You have scheduled activities at all times. It's not just like throw a video up on Twitch and hope people listen. It's like, okay, like now we're going to do a, a game in Discord. Now we're going to do a Q&A with the, the speaker in Discord. You know, then we're going to have the video. But maybe we're going to jump back to something interactive. And I think that like interactivity is the big thing. And when I've seen conferences that do this really well, they are very intentional about making them interactive and not just like passive viewing. Mm -hmm. But it, as I said, it's a work in progress. Like we're yeah. figuring it out like everyone else. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I feel like you have such an interesting perspective and, and so much like varied experience that uh, I'm a little envious of. Um, but I, I always like to end these with uh, sort of just like a fun, you know, exploratory question here. When you think about like the world of DevRel and tech uh, and someone that you haven't really had the chance to meet yet, um, is there anyone you would love to just like spend a couple hours with, take them to lunch, you know, get to know them, pick their brain, like someone, someone that you've never met before? 
I would love to meet Liz Kenyon, and she is a developer advocate at Shopify, and she creates really fun TikToks, and it just it, they just pull you in, and I would just love to hang with her and see her process. Yep, I've definitely found many of her TikToks on my, uh, was it the For You page or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. TikTok is like the next frontier of uh, developer content. Yes, it requires a lot of energy to keep up with the trends and and stay on top of them. Yep. Well, ho- hopefully she can uh, share that with you at some point. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I, I really enjoyed this. And um, if people want to find your work or or you know your online presence, uh, where where should they go? You can find me on LinkedIn. I think I'm Lauren Hayward Schaefer there, and you can also find me on Twitter. I am Lauren underscore Schaefer. And you can also find me in the Grammarly for Developers GitHub repo. I'm answering questions there all the time. Love to connect with you there. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And um, if you all enjoyed listening to this, definitely subscribe and and like and look out for more episodes. And um, happy hacking, everyone. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking or MLH. To find out more about MLH and how we power innovation, cultivate developer communities, and teach technical skills to students around the world, visit mlh.io. And then make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Don't forget to like and review the show, and we'll give you a shout out on a future episode. On behalf of the team here at MLH, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.